Hello and welcome to our latest GCP short in collaboration with Marsh Captive Solutions and on the topic of medical stop loss in the US market. For the next 15 minutes, I will be joined by Daniel Davey, stop loss specialty practice leader for Mercer in the US, and a familiar face to many captive folk, Art Korzynski, managing director within Marsh Captive Solutions. Dan and Art talk us through the state of the medical stop-loss market, how single-parent and group-captive programs are being structured for this coverage, and why there is increasing interest from large and mid-sized companies. So Dan, how do you assess the state of the current medical stop-loss market, and are there good options available for insureds in the commercial market right now? Yeah, so the commercial stop-loss market's growing and continues to harden. Stop-loss carriers generally have seen loss ratios rise over the past few years, driven primarily by advancements in medical therapies um, and overall increase in cost of care, not the least of which has been specialty drugs, including gene therapies. Um, We've seen recent launches of high-priced drugs such as Zolgensma, which treats spinal muscular atrophy, and that one comes with a whopping $2 million price tag. You know, in addition, there are other drug-intensive conditions like hemophilia or hereditary angioedema, where drug treatment alone for one member can cost millions of dollars a year. Regarding good options for insured in the market, it's yes and no. Um, Medical stop-loss underwriting practices have changed a bit over the past five to 10 years. They've gotten away from strict community type rating where most employers get a similar rate increase each year to underwriting practices that put much more weight on historical claims experience. So, you know, and by definition, catastrophic claims are unpredictable and not credible when predicting future experience. But insurers need to be able to provide aggressive pricing for what they deem to be good risks, meaning that those employers with not so good risk profile receive much higher rate increases. If you are what I characterize, you know, what we consider mid-market employer, five to hundred to five thousand employees with fairly good claims experience, limited ongoing risk, you can still get pretty aggressive pricing from the market. However, I'd say the market does fall down for a couple cohorts. First, smaller employers with relatively large ongoing risks, even something like a high-cost leukemia or MS patient. Um, those employers, because they don't have the size necessary to effectively spread that risk over their population, they'll have a hard time finding reasonably priced coverage, and they'll find it really hard to secure coverage that doesn't limit or exclude those known risks. The other cohort that I'll mention, and we'll talk about it a little bit uh, later, are larger employers that want to retain the majority of the self-funded medical plan risk, but want to offload risk for claimants above a very high level, say $3 million dollars. The commercial stop-loss market is somewhat limited in what they'll sell these types of employers. There's a limited market for deductibles over, say, a million dollars. Carriers just aren't all that interested in that business because the risk is so unpredictable and the premium just isn't large enough to make it worth it to them. So these employers are frequently looking for alternative ways to finance that risk. Cheers, cheers, Dan. That's a really nice overview for us uh, to to think about when we're talking about this market. Arts, on the captive side, are we still seeing growing interest from captives writing medical stop loss? And, and if so, why is that? Dan did a really good job kind of keying up the, the current state of the medical stop loss market. And we talk to clients all the time. It's one of our standard offerings now to clients is to, to take a look at medical stop loss. What we find in about half the cases is that the full impact for many of these organizations just is not yet hitting premiums. Um, And that's because there are 
multi-year programs where rates uh, are only able to go up a certain percent or not at all, and they have you know no no laser contracts. La- laser contracts are what 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 exactly do we mean by laser contracts? It's not a term I've I've actually come across before. Well, if you're in the property casualty business like I am, you know, you, you shouldn't have. And it took me a while to, you know, I kept hearing it and, and now I've figured out what it is. But from a benefits <laughs> perspective for organizations that are, are self-insured uh, who are buying medical stop loss, if there's a chronic case that's going to be a, a million or $2 million claim every year, generally stop loss carriers are going to laser it, I, I exclude it. Um, from coverage, which means that the full cost goes back to the employer. So again, many of these contracts have provisions that are going to lock in rates. They're going to have um, you know no new lasers, meaning they can't exclude anybody. But once those contracts expire and they go to uh, something other than community rating, they're going to feel the the full impact in their in their future premiums. Medical stop loss used to be a rounding error for many companies, but that's now attracting you know more attention at, at CEO, CFO level of mid-sized organizations. It's it's no longer a very small number. Very large organizations that are completely self-insured um, are starting to think about using captives internally to, to, to buy down retentions. It used to be, you know, whatever the costs were, they would they would fall back to to their divisions, to their um, you know, internal subsidiaries for companies that have, let's call it 20, 30,000 employees and up. However, you know, with the size of, of the claims, and, and Dan mentioned you know, there's medications that are now you know, $2 million a year. There's some that have been proposed that are $3 million a year. It, it, it can be an impact. So organizations are starting to, to use captives to buy down deductibles to give their business units more stability, very similar to what we see in the, in the property casualty area. You know, much more collaboration between risk professionals and HR when it comes to risk retention and financing strategies. And what's odd for medical stop loss is that, you know, usually we would see large organizations take the lead developing new risk finance options, but it's different with medical stop loss. In many cases, it's middle market firms that took the lead um, and started the medical stop loss captive wave with, with these heterogeneous group captives that are frankly, now a significant alternative for, for mid-sized clients. Yeah, it's really interesting, Art, that you mentioned the, the, the need or the, the drive from more collaboration between HR and the risk function. We hear that a lot, of course, on, on, the, on the other employee benefits areas. And we actually had one of Daniel's colleagues in London, Barry Perkins, on an employee benefits episode of the, of the Global Capital Podcast earlier this year, talking about uh, that very issue. Regarding the structuring of medical stop loss coverage through a captive. Uh, what is the structure? Can you just outline for us when a single parent captive is involved? There's a, there's a number of different structures. In some cases, the captive will underwrite you know, 100% of the risk. So the, the client, if they're self-insured, might keep the first 25,000 per claim, 50,000, 100,000. And then the, the captive would write a medical stop loss policy you know, above that. And what's unique about stop loss is there, there, there is no upper limit. So, you know, theoretically, it's, it's unlimited. Uh, and that sometimes can cause, you know, some regulatory concern when, uh, you know, when companies try to get, you know, approval for it because there is no, there is an upper limit on it. So other alternatives would be to have the, the insured keep, you know, some self-insured retention of, of again, minimum of 25,000, could be up to 
half a million or a million dollars per claim, the captive would then come in and take a layer. And it might be, you know, a half a million per claim, million per claim, two million per claim. And then perhaps buy excess insurance above it. And that excess insurance, you know, could be in the form of reinsurance. It could be in the form of stop loss insurance that could be purchased directly by the insured or uh, amounts, you know, above what captive retention could revert and go back to the insured. So when a company goes self-insured, they start off with owning 100% of the risk. And again, sometimes they use captives to buy down a certain share or uh, a larger share of that risk. And in other cases, like property casualty captives, they will use their captive to access reinsurance markets where, where there may be some efficiencies, both in, in transaction costs and actual uh, risk transfer costs. So, Dan, Art mentioned earlier about uh, heterogeneous captives. When it comes to medical stop loss, how does it work with, with heterogeneous captives? And, and do you see much interest from group captives in this area? And then how do the programs differ? Yeah, sure. So um, heterogeneous group captives are, are more likely to use a fronting carrier you know, type of arrangement. You know, they're operating nationwide in a lot of instances, and the captive requires a full service model, you know, including underwriting services and advice to pay on the claim side. So the captive wants to be both you know, consistent and diligent when evaluating risk for new entrants and receiving, uh, reviewing requests for claim reimbursements. So the fronting approach tends to make more sense. Um, but we, we are seeing quite a bit of interest in the group captives from employers of all sizes. Uh, there continues to be growth in the self-funded market as smaller employers want to move from a fully insured environment to a self-funded one. So a group captive can help smooth out that claim volatility early on and effectively increase their market leverage so they can attain some stop-loss coverage in a more cost-effective manner than they could on their own. Mid-sized employers, they typically look to group captives generally to increase the leverage in the market. I mean, sometimes the interest begins if they aren't happy with the renewal or how carriers, stop-loss carriers are evaluating their risk on a standalone basis. Group captives also provide a forum to these employers to share ideas with the other participants, leverage the collective size of the captive to purchase other cost containment services, and just generally you know, gain some additional perspective from their peer companies. Larger companies, as I mentioned earlier, are showing increased interest in group captive models, primarily to access reinsurance markets and purchase reinsurance at levels, you know, even as a large group that they can't get on their own. You know, we've developed a product in conjunction with Marsh and Guy Carpenter that addresses this end of the market. You know, a larger employer that may never have purchased stop loss before, you know, sees the changing risk in the self-funded medical environment and wants to transfer risk at the far end of the claim cost curve, say claims, again, claims over 3 million. So collectively purchasing that coverage for better, better price and terms can make a whole lot of sense. As far as how they differ, so, you know, we joke, you've seen one group captive, you've seen one. Um, there are a lot of variables associated with the programs that can be materially different. For example, layer of risk that a given captive program retains is almost always different. As a result, the layer that the captive retains impacts what coverage levels or deductibles are available to participating employers. Another notable item would be how surplus distributions are determined. The math is usually a combination of the overall experience of the group captive combined at least in part with the claims experience of an individual employer. Some programs are purely you know, all for one and one for all, while others restrict the surplus distribution to employers that actually contributed to generating that surplus. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. You know, other items you know, uh, include the amount of up upfront capital required, 
length of the commitment, how much notice is required when a group chooses to leave the program. So there's just a lot to discuss and review with your advisor. So regards to catastrophic losses, how do or how does a captive medical stop loss program deal with catastrophic loss? And what are the, the reinsurance strategies or, or options available? Yeah. So for medical stop loss programs, captives will generally, again, take a layer of the risk and then look to buy insurance for the top end beyond the captive layer. It can be done through commercial stop loss markets, as Art mentioned, or possibly more efficiently through reinsurance markets. Sometimes the reinsurance markets can be more cost effective, you know, think buying wholesale versus retail. And, you know, that strategy can become exponentially more cost effective, you know, when multiple entities come together in a group captive environment to increase, you know, the leverage. Now you take that model, um, you know, combined with, you know, the product we've developed where you're transferring risk at a very high level, say $3 million. And, you know, the ultimate cost for that coverage becomes extremely cost effective. Art, uh, another, another question I'd just like to ask you is we often hear with, with other kind of life or employee benefits lines that it can be a, a very good tool to, to diversify a captive's portfolio if they're, if they're traditionally just writing PNC. Is that very much the case of medical stop loss as well? It is because it's, it's not correlated with property casualty risks. And uh, while the focus of, of this session is really medical stop loss, we see a lot uh, of interest in voluntary benefits and uh, we still get questions all the time about the status of the U.S. Department of Labor uh, and on when they're going to you know, be open for business relative to, to companies doing group term life and long term disability like what was being done in the, in the 90s and 2000s until the freeze came on. Well, that's a, that's a really good over, overview of medical stop loss, uh, Art and Dan. I do appreciate your time. Just just lastly, Art, is there any other areas in the kind of health insurance uh, side which is impacting captives right now? We are. It's not exactly medical stop loss, but we've seen a lot of interest in association health plans. Um, and these can be insured. Um, but, you know, my, our unique interest is going to be the fact that they, they, can, they can also go into a captive. Um, there was some legislation that was always been on the books that allowed it. And this boils down to federal versus state issues. There were some rules that came out of Washington, D.C. about two years ago that, that uh, would seem to encourage the creation of these association health plans. They're a little bit of a threat uh, to some of the uh, exchanges that were set up. And some of the states were suing the federal government, like a lot of the other state federal issues, but in the end, there are a couple of association health plans, and they're structured as trusts, as, as group trusts, which will allow independent employers to band together to create a health plan. And this can be fully insured by a uh, traditional insurance companies, or it may be insured by a captive company. There's literally less than a handful of examples, but it's something that we see a lot of interest in as healthcare costs continue to grow. Well, thank you to Art and Dan for this discussion. Medical stop loss is not a topic we had covered previously on the Global Captive podcast, so I expect it was a valuable 50 minutes for our listeners. For information on Art, Dan and friends of the podcast, Marsh Captive Solutions, you can find links in the episode description and further profiles on globalcaptivepodcast.com. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. Captives.